Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Father Scott Lentz, here with Friar Christian Ubius. Uh, Friar Ubius, it is very good to be with you here on this Holy Catholic Day. We are discussing none other than The Exorcist. How do you be, Friar Ubius? Uh, the power of Christ is compelling me. But I'm not quite sure how much. <laughs> Let, let's start is there. That, is that in terms of your state of tiredness? Are you feeling unwell? Are it's you in terms of the demonic reeling? presence within me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Maybe we need to stop recording. Uh, I'll be over in a minute. <laughs> Do you have the holy water? It doesn't work without the holy water. Actually, apparently tap water also does the trick. We can we can suss out the details of your personal exorcism after we finish recording this episode here, Christian. But otherwise, I am excited to dive into one of the most iconic movies of the 70s, let alone 1973. None other than William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Christian, I often ask this question you often ask it of me do you have any relationship to this movie or were you watching it for the first time i okay so i have seen scenes from this movie and obviously the scary movie franchise parodied aspects of it i think in a pretty funny way so i'm familiar with different as you know parts of it i am a fan of ellen burstyn as an actress and knew that this was in her repertoire i knew that this was linda blair's most notable presence on film my dad watched it and said that it was the scariest thing he has ever seen and that it it kind of disturbed him so culturally i have known about the exorcist for a while but this was the first time i've ever seen it all what about you scott i'm in the same position i had never seen the exorcist i also i've discussed occasionally on this podcast but was a scaredy cat growing up and I stayed away from pretty much anything spooky, scary, or horrific. So it wasn't even on my radar as I was getting into movies, so to speak. And now I'm very glad that I've watched it. It's an, a movie, like you were saying, you were aware of some things about it. You had seen parodies of it. I was the same way, where I had not seen The Exorcist, but I knew, of course, that Reagan spins her head all the way around. And I had seen that famous shot with the light coming out of the house shining on Father Marin as he is arriving to perform the eventual exorcism. Some of these iconic moments that are part of our culture now, part of our movie-watching culture, now I have context for them, and I'm very glad that I do. As we did last week, we're kind of going to start with an overall discussion of cultural significance, I guess could be stated, uh, background information that not everyone knows you ready to just jump in scott i sure am christian there is there's just a ton of interesting backstory to the exorcist that's almost completely disconnected from the fact that it's a horror movie nothing about it being scary i mean just that there are some ridiculous box office numbers to discuss and the phenomenon that forms around the exorcist that i am uh, curious to hear what you've learned uh, based on some of the things that I've learned. Okay, so let's let's just start with the box office. The box office kind of rules. We Well, I said that last week. In terms of movie taste, 
Now, The Exorcist made $441 million. It was the number one film at the box office worldwide in 1973. Number two, Enter the Dragon. So we, we, we've got people shelling out their money to go and see this thing. This movie is rated R. You wouldn't even think that it's controversial to, to give it a rating of R. And but yet, it is. let's just say that folks of our particular spiritual persuasion were not too pleased with this movie coming out and not receiving an X rating, which was barely even a thing, but it was during the 70s. And there's accusations that Warner Brothers paid off the ratings board, MPAA, to give this movie an R rating. There's a ton of controversy still about why this movie only received an R and not an X rating, but it was very shocking for the time. And there are shocking things inside this film, like, I, I think that I'm going to have to give this episode the explicit warning. <laughs> are you going to are you gonna recite some lines for us, Christian? <laughs> no, I'm not, but I don't know how other ways we can say that a, a little, not, well, I guess like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl was pleasuring herself with the crucifix. And there we go. We've already earned that explicit... <laughs> tag uh yes that, that, that's that is a scene in this movie most famous and shocking and horrifying scenes in this movie uh it's stuff like that it's stuff like that that makes me wonder how this movie did get an r rating because you think well there's some swear words and there's some gross stuff but why should it have been rated anything worse than r but there's just some truly shocking things that happened to sweet linda blair playing reagan as a 12-year-old character. I'm not sure if she was 12 in real life at the time. Maybe she was a little older, but some truly shocking things. And yet, like you said, this movie was an absolute phenomenon. Uh, When you adjust all the prices due to inflation and factor in re-releases and director's cuts and things of that nature, this movie has almost grossed $2 billion over its lifetime. That's more than most Marvel movies. That's almost reaching Avatar you know, the biggest movies of all time. The Exorcist at the time was truly a phenomenon. I've used that word a couple times, but there's so much that goes into it being this smash hit beyond just its box office numbers. It was a runaway word of mouth success. It didn't open in a wide release, which, you know, a wide release was different then than it is now, but it didn't open in a wide release They had to expand it to more theaters because people were coming out in droves to see it. Notably, the black community here in our country was also coming out in mass to see it. And they weren't even a community that this movie was being marketed to. Warner changed their strategy because they realized that black audiences don't just care about exploitation or black exploitation movies. They don't just care about special interest movies. They'll come see good movies because they're normal people. And so they expanded into more theaters, particularly ones in urban city centers and the exorcist as this massive icon of pop culture exploded, both in terms of box office numbers and cultural influence and impact, but also in controversy and drama and And the number of people who fainted and reportedly went to the hospital while watching this movie 
Not to mention the, uh, I, I'm going to say the word just because I think it'll be funny to say it here. The cursed production set, not only was this movie over budget, both of its female stars it got injuries while portraying, well, I don't know. There, there was a lot of different weird practical and visual effects going on. They got hurt. Other than that, the set kind of burned down. There were so many different, like, casting weird changes of actors who would not take the role and uh, who, like, said, we will only take the role if you film it in Roma or who said, like, I'm pregnant, so I cannot take the or I could take the role, but I am pregnant. And they were like, you know, maybe... Not right now, considering what's going on in this movie. You're probably going to get hurt if you do this. Probably not a good movie for you to be in. I saw somewhere that this shoot itself was slated to be a relatively long shoot. You know, three months or so. And it ended up being over 200 days. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot going on. And even earlier, though, it's disturbing. It's interesting to note. That for something that had as many disturbing things, by the way, kids at home, we're going to be spoiling aspects of this movie. If you don't want to hear that, you can go watch it right now. Um, if you do want to hear it, note that what we're going to be saying, it might be shocking. It might be a tad shocking. Like the scene where Reagan walks into a room, says to the astronaut, you're going to die up there and then just pees. Just straight up peas on the floor. It's and, and and it sounds like a joke. It sounds like a joke that something of this is in movies. But somehow so many people wanted to go see this. The only horror movie that managed to beat it at the box office, not even adjusted for inflation, is it. And it came out in 2017. Its impact is lasting, as we've said. And I'm curious to get into this more when we inevitably get to our review section, talking about our thoughts on this movie, especially now that we've both seen it for the first time in full. But part of that, I think, is because horror movies before The Exorcist were a different beast entirely, not always trying to be this frightening, not always trying to be this connected to real life, usually... I guess I shouldn't say they weren't trying to be scary or frightening, but they weren't always this connected to real life. Lots of monsters like Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster or some some creepy or There's unsettling There's a notable things. exception to that rule, though. Which is? Rosemary's Baby. I haven't seen Rosemary's Baby, so I can't comment, but I've heard that's more of a psychological thriller than outright horror. What would you say? I think that it can fit the horror bill. I also think that Rosemary's Baby makes an interesting precursor and paved the way for The Exorcist to then again pave the way for more horror movies because the fact that they turned The Exorcist into a horror franchise, which you didn't even do at that time. You did. It's not like today where you get a trilogy of books and you split the last book into two pieces, so it's a four-part movie at that point. <laughs> Breaking Dawn Part 1 and 2, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, I just stopped this podcast dead in its tracks. Christian's real. Oh, okay. I have I have seen all of the Twilight movies. <laughs> I've only seen the first one, alas. But as you're saying, The Exorcist in many ways is one of, if not the first quote-unquote modern horror movies in that horror movies that 
come after the exorcist are often trying to tap into what the exorcist was doing and not always as successful. Obviously, it's been 50 years almost, so there are tons of really amazing horror movies and The Exorcist isn't the best horror movie of all time necessarily. It's I'm not a horror expert so I'm not going to make that claim, but there I think the reason The Exorcist is such a phenomenon is that it's trying to be a good and serious movie first and trying to be a horror movie second. And so many movies especially ones that last for decades on end are good because they're trying to be good award-winning Hollywood cinema first and then they focus on the genre aspects of it second and so a lot of movies that come after The Exorcist try to play out the scares the demon possession the head spinning the shocking profanity the violence but they're not always trying to be good movies or there are movies too that are like hereditary I feel is walking in the so clearly walking in the lineage of The Exorcist in that it's a horror movie with ideas on its mind and dealing with some of the same subject matter, this deep, insidious spiritual evil and possession and how that can rend a family asunder. It it exists largely because of The Exorcist, because Ari Aster probably saw The Exorcist and was like, I can process my trauma like this. Um, there's just this fascinating Hollywood effect that The Exorcist has. And let's also talk about how of all of the movies that we're going to discuss from 1973, all three of these films, and people don't really know what the next film is, but we will talk about that at the end here. All three of these films are pave-making movies. They they opened doors for people. They opened doors and they created this, this stimulus, this, I don't know what I'm saying stimulus for, this, this entry that wasn't there previously or was so much more limited previously. But once again... Uh, it's not, oh, what's the best word, what's the best way that I can say this? Once again, 1973 isn't known as like the greatest movie year in all of cinema. And so it's really interesting to look back and say, but it gave us The Exorcist. So why is it that we kind of look at other things within within the pantheons of stuff? Yeah, I, I agree. I think if I could go back in time to our last episode, I may want to walk back some of what I said about 1973, partially because I listened to a podcast that discussed The Exorcist and discussed it in context of 1973, talked about the Academy Awards that year. There are a lot of really notable movies because every year has notable movies. And even considering the Oscars for this year, which we can now get into, Enter the Dragon, alas, did not get any Oscar nominations. But at the Oscars this year, you have The Exorcist, being the most nominated movie tied with The Sting, which ultimately won Best Picture, The Exorcist also nominated, but you have American Graffiti from George Lucas, you have an Ingmar Bergman movie, Cries of Whispers, you have Bernardo Bertolucci, another controversial movie, Last Tango in Paris, you have Al Pacino at Serpico, these other movies that are coming out that have sort of stood the test of time, but many of which, like we talked about, haven't necessarily infected the popular consciousness as much a movie like serpico is more famous for its al pacino performance but it's not one that i've seen and it's not a movie that people our age 25 24 25 who aren't super invested in movies have gone out of their way to see but a movie like the exorcist is still an iconic horror movie 
and I'm sure that there are a lot of people our age who haven't seen The Exorcist, but for people who like horror movies especially, it's got to be one that is still commonly watched when you look at the most iconic movies of this year. Based off of that, it's it's something that I don't know can happen at this stage. I mean, the closest we've gotten to a horror movie experiencing the success of The Exorcist is Get Out. I mean, as much as I love Hereditary, Get Out, I think, had the biggest, the bigger cultural splash in terms of, well, not, not just box office, but the same Get Out was nominated for Best Picture. Get Out won Best Original Screenplay for Jordan Peele. Get Out is considered another trailblazer. Before Get Out, though... I, I guess maybe you can say Silence of the Lambs, sure. It's just, we're, we're not really living in a time where you see a horror movie being this financially successful on top of being this critically accepted. So that, I mean, that's interesting. That's, I, as someone who, as we spent part of last week looking at the similarities between 1973 and 2020, I maintain that i love sputnik a horror film that made it into my top 10 and so it's it's like what where are we going to be 15 years from now what is it going to be from 2020 that actually opened doors for people later on in these stages of life i was gonna say it's fun to think about horror movies i like i guess i like that you're saying a movie that is both critically acclaimed and financially bombastic i guess like that's not usually an adjective used to describe finances but a movie that just makes tons of money because you have movies like the blair witch project that come out in 1999 and the blair witch project is enormously financially successful because it was made so cheaply and it was again a phenomenon because nobody had seen a found footage movie like the Blair Witch Project. People thought it was real and they were shocked and horrified because they thought the actors actually were killed by the Blair Witch. But that movie was made for less than a million dollars and it made almost $250 million worldwide. Paranormal Activity comes along 10 years later, whatever it does, whatever it is, and does almost the same thing where it's made on shoestring budget and then makes a ton of movies or ton of tons of money after it comes out it also resulted in a ton of movies most of which were not uh critically received with affection but it is fascinating to see that there are these trendsetters in horror because you have slashers that come after the exorcist you have horror comedies like scream which i haven't seen and i know some people take on bridge the fact that it's a comedy but a movie that is aware of its lineage and is commenting on it while it's unfolding you have other types of horror subgenres popping up here and there, big movies coming out, but nothing lasts in terms of the trend and in terms of the box office success. But The Exorcist, again, is just the granddaddy of them all, especially in terms of acclaim and cold hard cash. All right, then, Scott, you ready to move on to some to some fun facts about The Exorcist? Oh, I am. This uh, being a famous movie... There are tons of fun facts to be had. We can start with the Oscars. This isn't so much a fun fact as it is just a fact, but mentioned it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Actress, Supporting Actor, and Supporting Actress for Ellen Burstyn, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair, respectively. 
thick actual fun fact this is jason miller's first film performance he was a playwright and he was having a hell of a year he won the pulitzer prize for drama for his play that championship season and then goes on to get nominated for an oscar for his performance of the exorcist you also have linda blair who played reagan very young at the time comes out her debut child performance i believe and gets nominated for an oscar as well the exorcist is based on a true story it's based on a novel that's based on a true story about a kid um it was a young boy his his name was given as roland doe even though that's a pseudonym and they called for priests to come over and the catholic church actually performed an exorcism of him i think the the year was 1949 and it made national news so everything that happened in the novel that the exorcist is based off of and everything that happened in the movie is based on recountings of events of what happened to roland doe it's crazy that it's based in reality not only in its filmmaking but in its origins even that William Peter Blatty based the story off that. Separately, we we do need to say <laughs> the Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, her voice isn't actually what's being used. Right. There's another actress. Don't mean to step on your toes there. But her name is Mercedes McCambridge, very famously providing the voice of the demon, Pazuzu, to achieve the effect that she gets in the movie she swallowed raw eggs and would chain smoke to alter her voice and even relapsed <laughs> with alcohol to again distort her voice even more and of course william friedkin who has a litany of <laughs> problematic choices behind the scenes of this movie was all for it and helped her get her voice as wacky as possible and would even restrain her behind the scenes to help her as she's recording the audio, not actually acting, help her achieve the effect of Reagan slash Pazuzu being restrained. Furthermore, and we mentioned this earlier, for the lead actress and the lead actor, we went through eight, so many different casting choices. I mean, Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, both were considered Jack Nicholson, I think, at one point. For Ellen Burstyn's character, uh, Jane Fonda was considered. Audrey Hepburn was considered. Um, oh, oh, someone else. Someone else was considered. Oh, I'm blanking on her name. <laughs> it's all right. It, it, it's fine. We're going to move on. We're going to move on, you know? So many people were considered. Definitely a movie where if it's recast in either of those major roles, either... Chris McNeil or Father Karras, it's a an entirely different flavor. Obviously, Ellen Burstyn and Jason Miller received a lot of acclaim for their performances, and it's hard to think about this movie without those two performers. Uh, the set burned down. No one knows why, but the set burned down. Probably because it was cursed, as you said. It's, it's just incredible. I mean, the only other movie I can think of that went through this many uh, production just oh awful awful stories that came out to be a success or at least critically a success is apocalypse now like this falls a little bit under that reign apocalypse now has been kind of just said to be hell on earth to 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 make but the exorcist was no walk in the park for these people and lastly one 
that made me chuckle. There is a scene in this movie when doctors are trying to figure out what is happening to Reagan, and she gets an angiography, uh, which is a medical procedure that I was not aware of before watching this movie. But it is it was considered so realistic that film critics hated it, called it needless and genuinely disturbing, but medical professionals described it as a very realistic depiction of that procedure, and occasionally this would even be shown in med schools as a reference point, so that people could see, or doctors in training could see the angiography performed in The Exorcist to remind them what it may look like when they are performing it on their patients. Scott, are you ready to you ready to move on to a discussion about the movie? I sure am. There's so many more weird, fun facts and behind-the-scenes crazy stories that we could talk about. But I am ready to share some thoughts on The Exorcist. All right, let's start with your opening question. So the way that I know the movie, the way that I know The Exorcist, is that there are horror movies, and then there's The Exorcist. The thing is, you know you're watching a horror movies nowadays because they're kind of self-aware. They play on the genre. They know when they're going for jump scares. And that is not how this movie turned out, really. It instead treats itself as something that could have happened. It treats itself like a real story, and we've already made allusions to that. It set a bar. It set a bar for everything else. Does The Exorcist actually have a high bar? Does it deserve to be held in that high esteem? And if not, why has it been considered this way? Does The Exorcist deserve to be held in high esteem? I would definitely say, yes, it does. I think that William Friedkin does set a high bar for himself, one that he and his collaborators were able to reach, able to exceed, if you will. I... I'm curious to talk about, in our review portion now, to talk about your thoughts on this movie, because watching it for the first time in 2021 is a very different experience than watching it for the first time in 1973, where we have seen graphic and shocking things in so many movies since The Exorcist, especially movies inspired by The Exorcist, where some of the shock value doesn't land as well. I think because we're just young people watching it for the first time and we don't have any history with it we don't have any recollection of how it felt to watch for the first time especially not watching as like teenagers people who were discovering this movie maybe illicitly because our parents told us not to watch the exorcist and we did anyway watching it as a young person yes but a grown-up now and having seen many horror movies and instead, I think there's a part of The Exorcist that just isn't as shocking or frightening. Some of these scenes certainly are, and we'll talk about those. But in terms of reaching the bar, being held in high esteem, I think, yes, it's still deserving. But in its horror movie-ness, if you will, it feels like The Granddaddy. A movie that isn't necessarily super scary anymore, but you can see why it was scary at the time and the influence that it's had on decades of movies and directors since i mean if i had been in a movie theater where the people around me are fainting as the girl on screen is vomiting pea soup 
And yeah, you know, maybe maybe it wouldn't have been the best night for me. Maybe I would have gone home and not been that happy. And and so I understand it. I will say, because you're probably going to try and dissect everything from the very beginning. I am a fan of this film. I think it was very, very strong. I am also quite curious as to how it's not... It, it, it's not even like it's a buildup to an exorcism. It's like, look at this small town. Not small town. It was Georgetown. Look at this area and look at this small setting and now see how an exorcism has occurred because this girl happened to be playing with a Ouija board and got possessed by a demon. It, it, it It's not like, oh no, what's the demon gonna do next? No, it's how do we get this demon out of this girl? You don't really see that in movies anymore. You don't really see that in horror movies. And the way it treated everything so matter-of-factly aided in how disturbing it was. For example, when she's pleasuring herself with the crucifix or when she's vomiting because she's carved little X's into her face with the crucifix that are kind of like bleeding green, I want to take a moment and pause and ponder life decisions. Take a sip of water, deep breath. The movie doesn't really let you do that. And I think that kind of aids in its strength. I would say that the only criticism I really have for it is that it's it's kind of aimless at times. This isn't really a story about a mother's grief, the way Hereditary was. This isn't really a story about how we've come to care about Linda Blair Reagan and and uh, are so disgusted that a demon has taken control of her. I could really care less about Reagan. I don't think she was actually put there for me to care about. And so, in terms of just caring about characters, it it kind of meanders around the different people. Meanders around is an interesting choice of words. I do think at times that Friedkin gets a little bit lost in the different narrative threads here. And the opening of this movie, I wouldn't call controversial. Did not need to be here. Did not I, need to I be here. I wouldn't call controversial, but I would say that you are not alone in that. <laughs> so if you have not yet watched it or you have completely forgotten what happens in The Exorcist, let us refresh you. This movie opens in Iraq. With Father Northern Marin, Iraq. Yes, specifically Northern Iraq. And Father Marin, who's played by Max von Sydow, who, another fun fact we should have said, was 44 at the time of filming, but they aged him up to look like a 70-year-old man, and you can't tell. It's honestly an incredible makeup job. He is at an archaeological dig, and he comes across these curious artifacts, and you see him making this trip i guess he he comes across this statue obviously of some sort some form of demon or deity or spiritual entity and then it cuts and we come back to georgetown and we start the movie proper and we don't see father Marin again until the end of the movie and he is the exorcist he is the one who comes back to georgetown well he comes back to america after that that scene in iraq but he's wherever he serves whatever parish he's at he eventually will come over to georgetown but again he is the opening 10 minutes of the movie and then shows up in the last 25 30 or so and then in between we have the story of chris mcneil 
an actress making a movie whose husband is no longer in the picture. It's implied that they are getting a divorce. And her daughter is, of course, possessed by this demon. And she has to figure out what's going on and how to save her daughter. And Jason Miller plays Father Karras, who is a priest experiencing a crisis of faith. He's not sure if he can maintain his beliefs. He's also trained in the sciences. He's a psychiatrist. And that is contributing to his doubts, as well as the untimely death of his mother. And so all of these things are happening. And I I think I agree with you in that at times the film can meander. But I'm not sure what all I would take out if I were to try to go back and make a Scott Lentz cut of The Exorcist. I can tell you what to take out. You're going to say the opening. <laughs> Well, yes, but it's not it. The thing is, is that I needed someone to root for in this film. And I don't really think it gave me someone to root for because it was more interested in showing these intersecting. Oh, yeah, sure. I guess I do want the demon to be out of the little girl. I'm not heartless. But I think that the true screenplay and direction honestly revolved around this one man, Karis's lack of faith as a priest i think that a lot of the film actually focused on him coming to terms with what it is that he cares about the shots of him before he learns about reagan are some of the only shots or plot points where people are not reacting to this event but instead allowed to breathe and be and so I think it's actually his character that's a huge anchor for the movie when he is the one who who helps complete the exorcism at the end I'm rooting for him and I'm caring about his fate but we don't spend too much time on him I think he is the strength he is the backbone of what's going on here Yeah I agree and I think in a way that Maybe if I were to make the Scott Lens cut, I would want to spend more time with Father Karras, especially because early on in the movie, there is sort of a jumbled chronology at times. For example, we see a scene of him visiting his mother and taking care of her, helping to rewrap her bandages on an injury that she suffered. And then a few scenes later, he's visiting her in a hospital and she's sick and it seems like she may not make it. And then she's dead. And I didn't get the sense that this was a flashback. Maybe it was. Maybe it was Karis remembering recent events, not experiencing current events. But that part of it, I wish, would have been made a little clearer. Especially because if so much of this movie is about his crisis of faith and how he will stand up against the forces of darkness during this crisis of faith, when somebody, especially for him as a Catholic priest, when somebody who has no faith is in serious need of a priest... I do wish that in a way that that had been a little bit clearer. And at the same time, I am open to the fact that I may be wrong about that. Um, and that maybe it the streamlined version wouldn't be as fascinating and wouldn't be as interesting to watch. But that is something that I thought about. And I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily agree with you that it meanders, so to speak, but I would understand where you're coming from in terms of spots where the, the narrative could have been clearer or the film could have been t- 
tighter, whether in its length or in its editing or in its screenplay. If there's one thing about the movie, just one, that you think holds up all of these years later, would you say it's the direction, the screenplay, or the performances? That is a good question, especially because they're interwoven. (laughs) I may say the performances, although I think the direction uh, is a close second for me, partially because of how impressed I was by Linda Blair as Reagan, having to endure so much in terms of makeup and her vulnerability in saying the things that she has to say. There are so many moments where Linda Blair has to put herself in a horrible, horrible place as not only as a performer, just as a young performer, as a 12 or 13 year old. That scene you described where she is using the crucifix to pleasure herself is extremely graphic and disturbing. But again, she had to do that. Not obviously do it in real life. It's a movie. But again, she has to open herself up to capturing this act on screen. She has to say these lines where even if Mercedes McCambridge is re-recording them and going over them later, they are going off of Reagan's performance. And so she has to say them on screen. I think that her performance is brilliant. In terms of child performances we've talked about in the show, we've gotten to see some really strong ones so far, but it's an iconic performance and an iconic horror movie character for good reason. But I think that in addition to her, Ellen Burstyn's work is so solid. And I haven't seen enough 1973 movies to say she definitely deserved that Oscar nomination, but it's such strong work. And like you said, um, in terms of people reacting to one another, she often has to carry the emotional burden of this movie. Karis's dilemma is obviously spiritual and emotional, but he is a bit more reserved and held back. And <laughs> Reagan is possessed by a demon and doing all kinds of crazy things. So Ellen Burstyn as Chris has to hold so much of the emotional burden in this movie. And when she goes big or when she stays small, it's still strong. Again, reminded me of... Tony Collette in Hereditary in that way. A performance that I'm sure she watched The Exorcist to learn how to perform in a movie like that. And I think Jason Miller is fantastic as well as Father Karras experiencing this crisis of faith. It was a shock to me that he had not acted in a movie before. So I think the performances have aged spectacularly well and were well deserving of the, the acclaim and accolades they received. But whether you have more thoughts on the performances or you want to answer your own question fire away but what did you think i think that again this is jason miller's movie i think that i i mean yes it's it's cool that this is the first thing he's ever acted in but more than that the almost inherent trauma that he's bringing to the screen is is magnificent it, it, he is someone whom i wanted to give a hug to because I can tell that things are so incredibly difficult and not because there's a demon on the loose because his life is just difficult. I think that that emotional turmoil he was able to bring is what's going to last for me beyond just the other strengths of this film. But I I do digress there. All right, Scott. Any closing thoughts before we move on to what we're going to talk about next week? I feel like we've barely scratched the surface with this movie just because 
there's so much to discuss beyond the craziness of Pazuzu, the demon, telling Karis what his mother's doing in hell. I just think this is a rich text, if you will, where there's a lot going on and you would probably draw so much more out of this movie on a rewatch, on a second rewatch, being able to return to it at different stages in life. That's probably why there's a thousand film essays made about it. Yep, probably. But something I specifically wanted to talk to you about, being uh, that we are both people of faith, we've discussed on the show before, that we are coming from a shared uh, Christian tradition here. I wanted to get your perspective on this movie as a Christian person. Because, like I said earlier, this is a movie that Catholic leagues protested and that seemed to have this specter over my white suburban Christian upbringing where movies like The Exorcist, movies with demons, we just, we can't watch movies like that. Movies that, that play around in that space. It's just, it's not honoring to the real spiritual battle we're fighting every day. But I think that this movie, in a way, edified my Christian faith in a way that I wasn't expecting. Because I think there is space given to those who are not faithful, or I guess I should say people who don't have religious beliefs. And there's also space here for specifically those of us who are Christians here in encountering a reality that we would say we believe in, that we believe is real. But I myself have been on a journey of reflection and spiritual deconstruction in a way and learning and unlearning so much about my faith and could relate with Father Karras in a way that I may not have been able to just a couple years ago. And... I was moved and inspired by Father Marin as a spiritual leader, I suppose. So in light of our shared background here, but also just in light of The Exorcist and what it would have to offer to both people of faith and people without it, what are your thoughts, whether connected to your own life or just about the spirituality? I honestly think it's something that we've already discussed. And that is that Jason Miller's father Karis is what drives this movie. Because his crisis of faith, his crisis of not knowing whether or not what he has believed in and been taught in his entire life is being brought into question. Is being brought into question by the death of his mother and the, the presence of this demonic spirit is trying to tell him, hey... I am stronger than your weak faith in whatever it believes in. Now, you can go at it from a Christian perspective in reading. I like it because I can go at it from that aspect. How it's almost like a reaffirmation. His victory, Jason Miller's victory at the end serves as a, as almost like a calling call saying, Hey, there wasn't anything wrong with what I believed in. Maybe I stumbled, but I got back on the path. But if you go at it from a non-Christian route, which many have done and can continue to do so. It's simply furthered by the fact that, yeah, I don't really know right now. I don't really know right now, and uh, maybe I need something to help me figure it out. This, this to me, is not a mother-daughter movie. <laughs> Let's just go at it that way. This, to me, is not a mother-daughter movie. And, of course, a movie doesn't have to be Christian to be spiritual, think that goes without saying. And I don't really think too many people saw this movie and converted to Christianity, Scott. <laughs> it's not necessarily a glowing advertisement for our faith, no. But I do think that it it is fascinating and that it works from both perspectives. And 
obviously being a religious person who loves the movies, there are connections I'm able to make with movies because of my faith that make me love them even more. Whereas somebody who doesn't have that faith can still make a connection in an entirely different way. Or somebody from a different faith tradition can make a connection based on something unique to that faith that I'm not necessarily able to understand. And that's the beauty of the movies is that we bring ourselves to the movies when we watch something. We're never just watching it in a vacuum. We're watching it with our our own history, our own past, the things that make us us. We bring to the movies and there are movies that you will watch now and maybe like or dislike and you watch them 20 years down the road after you have gotten that job or lost it after you've had kids or endured personal tragedy all of these factors that come into life that make us see the movies in a new light and part of that is why i love the movies so damn much and why we started this podcast so we can keep finding great movies watching them and discussing them together and continuing to learn and the exorcist is the kind of movie that despite its extremely controversial history and status as this big scary horror movie in christian circles lol it's a movie that i feel that i learned from and allowed me to process parts of my life in a in a healthy way (laughs) despite the fact that it is ultimately about an exorcism and a demon possessing a young girl uh all of which in terms of its reality i have no idea uh how how real it is it's it's obviously human beings making their spin on some potential events but again a movie that i am very grateful to have watched that i've learned from not my favorite movie of all time not one that i fell head over heels in love with but one that i liked a lot and that i'm very glad to have finally seen all right scott let the people know what we're going to be actually no i can let the people know what we're going to be watching next week that's right, dude. It's your month here. You've you've curated a very good month for us so far, and I'm extremely excited about the final movie we'll be discussing in our 1973 Blend of the Month. It's none other than American Graffiti, directed by George Lucas, written by George Lucas. It is. It's kind of wild. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it there would be no Star Wars without. T- American Graffiti. Oh, and also written by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Willard Hike. So, this is currently streaming on HBO Max. I really can't wait to discuss it. It's very different from the past two installments that we've had. Yeah, we've had some really good variety. And I am really excited to watch this as well, because it's a movie that's been on my watch list for a long time, being that I am a Star Wars fanatic. Hopefully... In a positive way, I have not yet bullied any celebrities online for their acting choices, but I am really excited to finally see American Graffiti, one of the movies that put George Lucas on the map, and ultimately, as you said, led to my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. All right, Scott, let the people know where they can find us on the socials. Yes, people, do please find us on the socials, and hey, as I always say, if you've reached it, reached this point in the episode just thanks so much thank you for listening it means the world to us that you are following along with us and 
enjoying the show. We love to watch these movies and produce these episodes, and so it makes us happy when there's good people out there giving it a listen. If you want, you can follow Christian and myself and the show all on Twitter. I might ask you especially to follow us on Twitter. We are trying to be more active on social media that way, and you can find us at cinemadrip underscore is our name there. But trying to throw out some more questions, maybe maybe do some polls here to keep the people invested and excited. That would be super fun if you wouldn't mind following us there. We also would appreciate any uh, reviews or ratings you could give us on Apple Podcasts, if you wouldn't mind. Helps us grow and reach more new listeners. And if you do leave us a review, we are happy to read it here live on the show. It's been fun to share some reviews here on the show, and we are very grateful when they do come in. So, if you don't mind... Wow, my voice is cracking a lot today. I apologize to those of you who have two... It's okay, you're going through puberty. Keep going. Puberty at 25. But please do leave us a review. We'd be happy to read it here on the show. Lastly, you can also follow Christian and myself on Letterboxd, where we are regularly sharing the movies that we are watching, rating, reviewing. I have not gotten up to date in my reviews because I watched a bunch of stuff over the long weekend that we just had here, so I'm a little bit behind. But I did recently share some thoughts on a little movie called Time, which I discussed on our top 10 or top 20 movies of the year. It was my number four. So if you want to see some more of my thoughts on time, you could find it there. Anything you've recently shared, Christian? I think I also wrote a couple of things on some of my top 10 movies of the year. Uh, I mainly track and go and then go back when possible to add a couple sentences here and there. I did write a review on She's All That where I said that Freddie Prince Jr. is the true Hollywood dreamboat. That is a take we'll need to devote an entire episode to because I'm still dumbfounded how Freddie Prince Jr. is a true Hollywood dreamboat to you. Or no, you didn't say he's a true Hollywood dreamboat. You said he's the greatest Hollywood dreamboat. What what audacious claim? He has claim natural he beauty. Let's keep going, sir. Just wait for the She's All That episode of uh, Cinema Trip. I do spy with my little eye as well that there is an email sitting in our podcast at gmail.com email inbox, and I'll be happy to read it next week on the show. Do come back. We'll share some feedback that we've gotten from you lovely people out there. As always, again, we're so grateful that you've listened. Hope you enjoy the show here on The Exorcist. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening at home? No, but don't faint. Always Always good advice. Rules to live by there. He's Christian Abuse. I'm Scott Lenz. And this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.